Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Jane Meller from the University of Oxford on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD in 1982 from the University, University of Reading. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the University of Oxford until 1986. After that, you became Monsanto Re Senior Research Fellow at Exeter College in Oxford. Then from 1989 to 1995, you were Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow in Basic Biomedical Science. And since 1995, you are University Lecturer in Biochemistry at the University of Oxford where you were dean from 2009 to until 2014, and since 2016 you are director of teaching at the Department of Biochemistry. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, um, I guess I read a book when I was in my teens called Microbes and Men, And it was really about Louis Pasteur and, you know, how he sort of really discovered or rediscovered the relationship between bacteria and disease, proving Cox postulates, you know, the principle of pasteurization. And then I got more interested in microbes generally. Um, and, yeah, I was sort of hooked. When I went to university, which was quite a long time ago now, um, there was no molecular biology. And um, the only way to study organisms in a, any sort of mechanistic way, in the way I was interested in, was to study bacteria and viruses. So um, I went to do a degree in bacteriology and virology, which was fantastic. <laughs> I really loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, it was really sort of cutting edge. There were only 10 of us on the degree course and there were, you know, more, more staff that belong to the faculty than uh, than undergraduates. And we had, you know, one-to-one -one treatment. We studied, you know, really dangerous bacteria, <laughs> like, uh, like to, you know, mycobacterium tuberculosis. We handled that in the lab and, you know, went to laboratories like um, the Animal Virus Research Institute where they worked on all the, you know, major animal viruses. So it was a fantastic sort of, opening to to studying genes and and uh and so, genetics so i guess that's you know that's where i started yeah so you had a, like a, a deep dive into the academic career early on right so you, you knew what what you were dealing with uh well i i never planned to become an academic interestingly um, at every stage of my career i always tell people that there were options so i had um Once I'd done my degree, the option was work on the production line of Scottish and Newcastle breweries as a microbiologist or do a PhD. So that was a sort of no-brainer. <laughs> and I went to work on animal viruses. I worked on foot and mouth disease virus for three, four years. Uh, and then at the end of my PhD, it was a postdoc or maybe something different, but got a, an offer of a postdoctoral position. Um, and, you know, that was my sort of career defined. But at every step, 
there have always been other options available. And it's quite a nice way of having a career because I never really minded where I ended up just as long as I had a job that would interest me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I've been really lucky. I've had a, a fantastic career basically pursuing a hobby. <laughs> but then your hobby is gone, but uh, that's basically everything, uh, uh, yeah, what you face. Yeah, yeah but, uh, you know, I, I know there are stresses involved in, in doing fundamental science And I think they're getting worse, you know, with the with the the pressure on people to publish and make novel discoveries. But certainly, you know, when I started out in the well, late 70s, I suppose, after I finished my degree, it was um, there was really a bit more space to really explore. And um, I, I have been very lucky. I've been able to do that. So when I, I uh, yeah did some research about this uh, episode and about um, yeah what you were doing there were some other people with your name on it so it was not so easy to find <laughs> to find out um, uh, about your work so uh, what did you end up starting with after your postdoc well during my postdoc i i started doing a a postdoc because i had lots of experience of handling rna which comes from working with an RNA virus like foot and mouth disease virus. And because I could stand because I could study RNA, and at that time the northern block technique had just been published. It was Gene Beggs actually who published that. Um, I went to work in Oxford to study gene expression in yeast as, as a postdoc and to, to develop yeast as a as an expression system. And I did a four-year postdoc, and I worked with uh, Celtech, which was Britain's new sort of biotech company at the time. Did a lot of contract research for them. Got um, research sort of spun out of Bass Brewers, who no longer exists, but using leftover beer uh, <laughs> as, a, as a system for making blood components like albumin and other sort of high volume, low, low value products. And it did that for four years. And we made all sorts of, we expressed all sorts of things, chymosin, worked on um, transposons in yeast, trying to develop multivalent vaccines, all sorts of things. It was, it was a fantastic time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. It's, it's not boring. <laughs> <But> then, <laughs> then I got an opportunity um, to set up a lab On my own, I, I got a, a Monsanto research fellowship, and there I really began to focus in on um, on yeast and some of the fun discovering some of the fundamental principles of um, how genes in yeast are expressed. So, you know, what what is a promoter? There were really fundamental questions: um, how how are genes expressed? How are genes switched on? What transcription factors do? Um, focusing either on yeast genes, so promoters we've been using in our heterologous gene expression systems, or on the transposon of yeast, which we discovered was like a retrovirus. TY was the retrovirus of yeast. It was an endogenous retrovirus. Uh, and so, you know, we were discovering how the, the coat protein and the reverse transcriptase was, was expressed and, um, Yeah, it was all very exciting. 
Um, the first paper I've, I found was from the year 2002, and this was also in combination together with Tony Kosaridis. Um, and there you looked at H3K4 trimethylation um, at active genes and uh, at the enzymes that put the modification there. Um, mm. So obviously those were also the early days of epigenetics. <laughs> so oh, yeah. what was... So, so, so my career has, has two parts. So there's a sort of a, a pre-children part of my career and then a post-children part of my career. So the the paper with Tony is really post babies. So I, I had a, a sort of three children and then then came back into science. But yes, that was really the start of epigenetics. Very exciting. Um, looking at trimethyl K4. And I've been interested in trimethyl K4 ever since. And, and don't get me started on trimethyl K4. I can oh, I, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> Well, you know, we 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 discovered that that trimethyl K four at the time in yeast marked um, the beginning of active genes, and we were very careful in that paper to say it marks the beginning of active genes. But a lot of people uh, interpreted it to mean that trimethyl K four was an activating mark. And so the, the the cause and consequence was somehow mixed up. Yes, because. Well, we, we we subsequently discovered that this mark is pretty much a universal mark of the first nucleosome in every transcribed unit of virtually every organism. Sometimes it spreads a bit further, but basically it will tell you where transcription has or has the potential to start. Um, and so because of this very tight correlation, this association with activation of genes um, was sort of established. And for many years, people would talk about trimethyl K4 as an activating mark, but really it isn't. And it's been very hard to disabuse people of that, that idea. So it's <laughs> so, yeah, just, passive, sorry, it's just passively there, like co-transcriptionally. Co I, I don't think it's passively there. I think it's, it's marking out events. So just like, I mean, it, it basically reflects the link between RNA polymerase, the processing of the RNA, and what's going on on the chromatin. And those three events are really tightly, tightly linked. And it can be used as a modulating mark. So there are lots of uh, protein domains that bind to trimethyl K4 and can modulate the environment, deacetylate, acetylate. It can affect um, lysine 9 methylation. Um, But I, I think probably the best way to think about it is as a mark of the beginning of a transcription unit, which together with the dimethyl and monomethyl, which of course are sort of spread in a, in a way along the gene as a way of preventing repression of the gene. So rather than it being an activation mark, it will prevent heterochromatin spreading over a region because of its effects on, on K9 uh, methylation, for example. So before we come to the enzymes, readers, writers, and and uh, yeah, and so on, um, is this only true for genes and gene bodies, or is this also true for maybe enhancers and other activating structures of the genome? I'm I'm sure it is. I mean the 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 monomethyl K4 together with uh, you know your 27 acetylation. Because yeast don't have enhancers, and because in mammalian cells it's much harder to do the sorts of experiments, the genetic experiments that you need to do to show the relationship between um, the heterochromatin and genes, I think it's probably fair to say 
we can't say that, but I would imagine that, um, yes, it um, almost certainly will prevent repression. So uh, the paper in 2002 I mentioned, um, you also looked at the writing enzyme of H3K4 trimethyl. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you find it? Did you set out to look for that? And, and uh, how is it characterized? Set one um, is, is a very interesting enzyme. And, and that, I guess, comes from really the skills of the Kuzaridis lab in terms of sitting down with a problem. Okay, how do we find the writers of this mark? How, how do we find what it is? Um, and really doing the, the deep thinking in a completely unbiased way to work out what's required. So we knew that SET1 proteins had um, SET domains, um, <laughs> and we it was beginning to be understood that SET domains were associated with methylation of proteins. And so it really was, okay, yeast have six set domain proteins. Let's knock them out sequentially and see if we get lucky. And we got lucky. <laughs> it wasn't very difficult. Having the antibody, having that tool made it very easy to associate set one with, uh, with methylation of lysine four. Yeah. So that's basically a lot of work and uh, just like basic biochemistry, knocking out the, the enzymes and seeing what it what the effects were? Yeah. I mean, we were lucky in, in that it's not an essential enzyme uh, because it's much harder to make those associations when your factor is, um, you know, is, is essential and the genetics become much more complicated. But in this case, it was really straightforward. Uh, I suppose it's fair to say that some of the other set domains have been less easy to characterize. Set one and set two are the, the, the two main ones that have been really thoroughly characterized. The others, set three actually is a component of a, a histone deacetylase complex. So, you know, that's, um, that doesn't have a, a sort of straightforward association. So um, we got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes uh, one needs to get lucky, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so you then, and you and your team also followed up on this story by identifying also the reader of H3K4 trimethyl. Um, which protein is the reader of this modification and what did you find out about its function? Well, this is uh, SNF2H or ICY1 in, uh, in yeast, it's, its equivalent protein. So, yeah, work on ICY1. We were able to show that that it was a reader and that it had the, the correct domains. Showing a function for ICY1 was really much, much more challenging. So the biochemists, and there are some great ATPs biochemists around, did a fantastic job of showing what ICY1 did in a test tube to nucleosomes. It's a nucleosome slider, basically. But working in vivo was much, much more challenging because um, there weren't any very obvious phenotypes associated with, um, with ICY1. And in fact, there appears to be quite a lot of redundancy with ICY2 and the third um, ATPase in yeast, which is uh, CHD1. And, and when you knock out all three, then you begin to see quite severe phenotypes in terms of nucleosome positioning. But on its own, ICY1 
didn't appear to do a lot apart from position nucleosomes. And we did quite a lot of mapping of nucleosomes, looking at genes as they became activated. One of our favorite systems at the time was a gene called MET16, which in yeast um, was involved in methionine uh, biosynthesis. And that had a very beautiful ISY1 dependent uh, chromatin structure around, around its promoter. And we, we were able to show that ISY1 was positioning nucleosomes, you know, around the promoter. We were able to show that it worked in conjunction with um, three other ISY1 associated proteins, the so-called IOP proteins, and that these had different roles with ISY1 at the promoter and in, in the body of, of the gene. So though we couldn't show definitively using micrococal nuclease mapping techniques that ISY1 was actually involved in the body of the gene, we had sort of indirect evidence uh, that, that that's, okay. how, that's what it did. Yeah. yeah. You also looked then into, you also mentioned that there is some redundancy and that there might be different forms of uh, the ISY1. Um, yeah. Which function do those forms have uh, in coordinating the transcription? Yeah, well, ISY1A seems to be at the promoters and ISY1B acting more over the body of the gene. So we think that ISY1B travels with, um, with, with polymerase. I, I, I think it's fair to say that it probably took about 20 years to go from that initial work to having a better understanding of what um, the ISY components were actually doing. And actually, that, that required a, a collaboration with uh, Catherine Dargemont's group in, in Paris, where we showed that one of the additional roles for ISY, which is a transcription-related role, um, it's a nuclear role, is to retain poorly processed transcripts in the nucleus and target them for degradation by the nuclear exosome. So it's almost like it, it goes back to this idea of, polymerase being this intermediate between the processing of the RNA and what's going on in the chromatin. And it looks as if ISY1 was doing exactly that role. It was, it was seeing what was happening on the transcript and relating it to what was going on during transcription and retaining those transcripts. And in some ways, there are other There are other remodeling enzymes which have been shown to play uh, similar roles. For example, um, the uh, switch sniff type remodelers, you know, interpret marks both on the RNA and and on the chromatin. So, yeah, complicated. And I, and I have to admit, we still don't fully understand how this ISY function is directly related to transcription. Yeah, I mean, the field of RNA modifications and also the, the, the interaction between the RNA modifications and the chromatin modifications, I think this field is uh, getting some traction in the last couple oh, yeah, of years, absolutely. right? Yeah, epitranscriptomics are where it's going to be. And that's where the answer will probably lie. Um, there will be some event which has been aberrant, which will, you know, the, allow ISY to, to be recruited to the RNA because we know it's an RNA binding protein, just as we know that, for example, SET1 is also an RNA binding protein. You know, it contains an RRM motif. Um, and I think one of the functions of these enzymes is really to be doing this crosstalk between the RNA processing 
um, and uh, and the chromatin. And when we come to your more recent work, uh, which means uh, 2021, uh, you and your team published a paper which I found really interesting. Uh, And it has always interested me the what the relationship between RNA pol 2 and the nucleosomes is. Does it go through it? What happens when a the polymerase encounters a nucleosome? So in this paper, you specifically looked at RNA pol 2 and the plus two nucleosomal barrier. Um, mm. Could you please briefly explain what the what this nucleosomal barrier is and then what you found out about it? Well, yes. What is a nucleosomal barrier? That's actually. I'm not sure I can answer <laughs> that question, but but I, I guess it reflects um, the what you might call the privileged environment that you see at the beginning of transcription units. So the plus one and plus two nucleosomes seem to be where there are there's a lot of um, control, partially through the chromatin modifications partly through control of polymerase and partly through the need to have specific factors and remodeling enzymes to allow coordination of the onset of transcription with processing of the transcript. So yet again, we're back to processing of the transcripts. Um, so the, the, the plus two nucleosomal barrier, which is about at 160, 170 or so uh, nucleotides into the coding region, depends on where you want to where you want to start and whether you're looking at dyads. Um, polymerase seems to accumulate on the upstream side of the dyad of the plus two nucleosome um, in the absence of one of the key elongation factors, SPT4, which is one of the components of the DSIF complex in, in mammalian systems. And in fact, SPT4 and its partner SPT5, which make up DSIF, are, I suppose, the most conserved um, transcription factors in organisms with nucleosomes. And in fact, SPT5 is the most conserved transcription factor because it's found in bacteria, archaea bacteria, and in, uh, in eukaryotes, so in all two or three kingdoms, if you like. So they're very important factors. And this is a, a key role for SPT4, and it prevents polymerase um, accumulating. And I suppose in order to really get to the nitty gritty of what these factors are doing on a nucleosomal template has required the development of a whole wide range of new, really high resolution um, techniques to, to see what's going on. So a standard chip where, you know, the resolution is 200 nucleotides, if you're lucky, won't hack it. You have to have nucleotide resolution techniques. And one of the, um, techniques we developed to do that is, is a technique called um, transcription elongation factor, uh, nascent elongation transcript sequencing, or TEFSEC, which allows you to immunoprecipitate polymerase associated with factors and sequence the RNA in the active site of the RNA polymerase enzyme to get base pair resolution data on where factors are associated with pol 2 And that's how we were able to um, really understand where SPT4 was on the chromatin and use that information together with the consequence of taking away SPT4, either as a deletion or now using more modern techniques, using real-time degrons 
to see uh, to see what was happening to the exact position of polymerase using NetSec or, or, or TEFSEC, so, so mapping exactly where polymerase was paused. And, you know, without those techniques, you wouldn't be able to do those sorts of experiments. So I haven't asked your question, what's the nucleosomal barrier? <laughs> and why, why is the, the barrier at the plus two and not at the plus one nucleosome? Well, the, the, there is a barrier at plus okay. one. There are in fact, two pause sites. There's one at around plus 60 and one at, one at 160. So the plus one nucleosome, I think, is really quite hard for polymerase to get through or quite easy, depending on which way around you look at it. <laughs> The plus one nucleosome is a very interesting nucleosome because it has a really high turnover rate. So it's it's what's called a hot nucleosome. So newly incorporated histones are rapidly incorporated into the plus one nucleosome. So it's very, very dynamic. So it requires all sorts of machineries like ISY1, like the chaperones, like um, variant histones, really to give it those properties. And then you've got the plus two, which is the next one downstream. And these, these events really are, I'm just starting, you know, I'm, I can acetylate, deacetylate, keep this nucleosome active. That will help polymerase pass uh, through the plus one nucleosome. Um, and then, you know, you need a pause. You need time for polymerase to decide what it's going to do. You know, you need time for that transcript to get capped and, um, you know, set one and trimethyl K4 and serine 5-phosphorylation, which recruits them, are part of that, that, the upstream part of that message. And the downstream part is the recruitment of the capping enzymes, um, which are going to put the 7-methyl G cap onto the transcript. And part of this pausing mechanism, although yeast aren't supposed to have a pause, they still have the checkpoint. They still have to cap and check that the transcript has been capped before moving on. And um, our thinking at the moment, although we haven't proven it experimentally, is that this this more downstream checkpoint is 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 to do with that. We have a lot more coming out on these checkpoints, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> stress. So there's a few more papers on bioarchives which aren't yet uh, properly published, which uh, relate to some of these newer ideas we have. Yeah, that would have been my next question. So what are you working on right now? Because the talk you gave at the Amble meeting, uh, Metabolism Meets Epigenetics, was is probably unpublished work. Uh, but yeah, what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Well, that's a good question. So uh, over the next five years, so, so we are really heavily into trying to understand the relationship between metabolism, chromatin, and transcription. And I, I suppose... What I'd like to be able to do in five years' time is show that the dogma that transcription will always occur solely to bring about phenotypic changes is not right. So, <laughs> so you obviously, if you want to change your phenotype, the dogma says you need a new protein. And we're not challenging that, of course. But it's the idea that uh, cycles of transcription, so transcript cycling and transcription cycling, which occurs in many cells, gives you noise in single cell experiments, we think is not necessarily related to the production of proteins because proteins are very, 
I'll rephrase that, not necessarily linked to the behavior of protein. So in other words, if you have a cycling transcript, the assumption always is that your protein levels will change in concert, and that will bring about phenotypic changes. So you get more of an activity, and that can change in a circadian rhythm or whatever. The literature suggests that that's not necessarily correct because the proteome on the whole is very stable. And we can rationalize these pulses of transcription as providing small doses of protein to uh, restore that which is lost by cell division and by autophagy. But the key question we're trying to understand is, is if that's what transcription is doing, why do you have to have cycling transcription in things like a circadian rhythm or in a, a, a metabolic cycle or even in every cell? Because, of course, every cell has a rhythm. It's just that when we're studying things in culture, they're all asynchronous and we can't see them. Although the effects of seeing them, as I said, is becoming evident in single cell sequencing experiments where people are saying, oh, this RNA is really stochastic. It's here in one cell and not in the other. But that probably reflects the fact that you're getting a pulse of expression in one cell and not in the other cell. And you get that pulse when you need to make protein. But the question is, why does why do transcript cycle? Why does transcription cycle? And, and what we're working towards is, is that this is related to changes in the underlying metabolism in cells. So cell metabolism is constantly changing. So cells go through phases of um, you know, being more reductive, more oxidative. Uh, the metabolism changes, flux through the TCA changes, and this influences transcription through the epigenetic modifications on things like lysine 27. So acetyl-CoA levels vary during a cell cycle and during a rhythm. And the spare acetyl-CoA we think is stored in a nuclear cytoplasmic pool. And the histones are a great place to store the excess. Uh, and the consequence of that is loosening up the structure and getting bursts of, uh, of transcription. So you're sort of doing two things with one metabolic signal. That sounds very, <laughs> very interesting, and and there are also some modifications that then are not like reversible, right? I mean, there there are marks that are put on chromatin that cannot be erased again, so there might be some also um, permanent changes to chromatin. Well, I'm not, I reckon that that is going to be taken care of by histone turnover. I mean, I mean, I think that the, that that may be a true statement, but by histone turnover and or by by cleaving the ends off the tails of the histones, um, there are some epigenetic marks, and of course they can reflect changes in in metabolic state and can be inherited. Whether you know things like metabolic syndrome are going to be reflected purely, you know, purely epigenetically in terms of what's on the chromatin or whether it's going to be through non-coding RNAs or through other epitranscriptomic mechanisms. I, I'm not prepared to, to comment on that. But yes, I mean, it, it's all to do with, with changing state. And the other thing that, that we're very actively involved in is one of the local companies that I was involved in spinning out back in 2007, I think a long time ago now, uh, which uses um, higher order structures in chromatin to report phenotype 
the company is called Oxford Biodynamics, and it has a very nice, easily usable way of measuring higher order structures. And we're working very closely with them at the moment to relate changes in higher order structures in the chromatin with altered metabolic states. So, for example, in the system I talked about at the EMBL meeting, um, we're using the IDH central metabolic mutant in the isocitrate dehydrogenase, which when mutant alters flux through the whole of the TCA cycle and increases the relative concentrations of quite a lot of metabolites in the cell. And that has all sorts of changes. The epigenome changes, patterns of gene expression change, but they're not necessarily linked in the way that we assume they are. And one of the things we're really pushing hard is, is that actually what these metabolic changes are doing and the underlying chromatin changes that reflect them is, is reflecting an alteration in higher order structures. So yeah, in five years time, I'd like to be able to relate the confirmation of the epigenome, the DNA, the chromatin, and what's going on in the nucleus to phenotype, be it through gene expression or be it through metabolics or both. <laughs> Yeah, that would be very interesting because right now it seems that you can delete heads and the higher order and change the higher order structure of chromatin to a certain degree and not really very much changes. Um, but it would be nice to see some some results in this area. Well, we don't know about the higher order structure of the chromatin. We certainly know that not a lot changes in terms of gene expression, although the epigenetic marks do change. I mean, it, you know, if you delete your tets or or um, or you know inhibit them. As, as we're doing, there are changes. You do get more DNA methylation. You do get more protein methylation. Um, but there's not a huge amount of change in the phenotype. Not at least if you just look at a single cell. There may be, like many of these things, changes in the ability of cells to differentiate. And this is where a lot of these modifications may turn out to be really important. So, for example, trimethyl K4 may be important for differentiation, just as the correct levels of methylation of the DNA and the protein are important for, for methylation, but they don't seem to affect the phenotype of the cell that they exist in prior to attempting to differentiate them. And that, I think, puts a whole new spin on what we understand by, by you know, the importance of epigenetic modifications. But in some ways, you know, that's what it should be about because they are inheritable marks and presumably the new state is reading the previous state. And if that's different, it can recognize it as different and may not do what it should be doing, i.e. not differentiating <laughs> in the way you assume it's going to differentiate. So, you know, I think we need to do a lot more in, in those sort of areas to really begin to deconstruct what's going on. And that will apply to the relationship between metabolism and the epigenome and the structure of the genome. Yeah. yeah. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. Um, the first one, did you at one point of a career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed the question, uh, to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, I, I think I think the early work, <clears throat> excuse me, the early work that we did with the ISY chromatin remodeling enzyme um, led us to a bit of a dead end. And in fact, 
I had to reinvent myself a little bit at that point and move on to um, to look at other aspects of gene expression because we we just didn't have the technology at the time to really understand what these factors were doing in the cell. And I, I'm not a hardcore biochemist. I don't. We do biochemistry, but I. I'd rather understand in vivo events. So I would say, yes, I have faced that. And I think all scientists have to be able to, you know, accept that you've reached the end, that the technology doesn't exist and that you're going to have to um, find something else to do. (laughs) I think most of us have got enough irons in the fire that actually that's not too difficult. Yeah, that's true. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Well, I mean, if you look at my CV, my CV actually goes back to, um, you know, to the 19, well, eight, very early 1980s. So I have quite a lot of seminal papers in 1983, 1985, a couple of nature papers where we were working on TY. So um, as, as, as a postdoc, I mean, they were very exciting times. We were making really fundamental discoveries in, in cells. But sort of post-children career, you know, as, as you were saying, from 2000 and from 2000 onwards, it, it was really looking at chromatin, looking at remodelers, um, And that was exciting, but but a little frustrating because it was very hard to get clear answers. I mean, we got lucky with SET1 and, and trimethyl K4. Um, we got the link to the, the yeast and the human remodeling ATPAs, but we couldn't really take it beyond that. Uh, and so, you know, it, it involved refining nucleosome mapping technology, which we did for a while. And then I guess, really developing um, more about transcription. So developing new transcription-related techniques to study genes in detail. And I suppose in terms of the stuff that we've done relatively recently, I'd say that the work we've done on PATH1 and its association with the chromatin, um, I think is going to have a fairly big impact it perhaps was not as impactful as it should have been when it was published back in 2017 but it's getting some traction now and getting getting cited so that that technology is the TEFSEC technology to understand where factors are on polymerase as opposed to just generally associated with the chromatin so could be on the RNA could be on the chromatin you know you've got to distinguish these things now because you have to be careful not to conflate two different things And the metabolism, I mean, I'm really excited by everything that we've got about to come out on metabolism. So both the yeast metabolic cycle and um, metabolism and disease states like the glioma work that, that, that I talked about, we have a, a lot of data which we're about to publish on that. So, yeah, I mean, there are highlights all along the way. Uh, it's been a long career. <laughs> um, uh, pr- probably probably too many different things to mention but it's been a a fairly convoluted journey through through gene expression and that's the way I like it to be um I I like the ability to you know to ask a question and then um develop a technology to really probe something and then discover something really new so 
you know, what we were doing in back in 2016, 2017, 2018 was really trying to get to grips with the relationship between the chromatin and the fate of the transcripts. And that's what the PATH1 story does. We have a molecular systems biology paper where we were looking at the consequence of antisense transcription and how that affects the, the acetylation state of the chromatin and how that affects transcription and the fate of the transcripts because they are so closely intertwined. As you are transcribing, you're putting proteins on the RNA, you're putting whatever marks on the chromatin. And that is a whole message which goes with the transcript right to the nuclear pore complex and out into the cytoplasm and can determine the, the rate of turnover of an RNA. So I think the, the idea that everything is much more interrelated and that you cannot just study one thing in isolation, you have to look at the cell, not even the nucleus, but the cell as a whole to really get a feel for what's going on. So I'd say that's that's a, a relatively recent contribution. And now metabolomics is sort of informing that multiomics approach to understanding genes and proteins and post-translational modifications, because that's where it's all at. It's post-translational modifications determined by your metabolome, which dictate most events in the cell and which, of course, link protein activity in the cytoplasm to protein activity in the nucleus, which is what epigenetics is really, <laughs> in my view. Anyway. Yeah, I think that's a good point to end this interview and a, and a nice uh, statement. Uh, thank you, Jane, for your time and for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.